And I think that a lot of what comforting people is, is both of those things that you're listening to them enough to make them feel heard enough to have like a certain validation around that pain or discomfort that they're feeling, but also to just zoom out and say, this is not as big of a deal as you think it is. What is up, you sexy bastards? It is your boy, Green Grapes, a.k.a. Rabbi Can't Lose, a.k.a. Noah Kagan. Today's episode, I talked to David Perel. David is a writer, educator, and he's really good at golf, but he's also the founder of Rite of Passage. It's an online writing school. You can learn more about that at riteofpassage.school or perel.com. Now, David is the next generation of entrepreneurs. So as a dinosaur, now that I'm 40, it's so old in internet years, I wanted to be around these people to figure out what the hell the new kids are doing on Twitter, online businesses, and beyond. So we talk about that and other things in this episode. Here's three gigantic things you're going to take away. One, how did it realize he could actually make money teaching people how to write online? Two, the triangular nature of desire. And three, helpful strategies for comforting people when they're having a tough time. Enjoy those three things, plus a bunch more ear nuggets along the way. If you all have not checked out AppSumo.com, I know you have. Go to AppSumo.com. It is the number one software deal marketplace online. If you're looking to buy any software to help your startup or sell software that you're making, go to AppSumo.com. Secondly, I want you guys to go subscribe to the My First Million podcast. It is hosted by my great friends, Sam Parr and Sean Puri. They talk really wild business stuff. You've probably heard the episode. You're probably subscribed, but they talk to Rob Diedrich. They talk about chess.com being worth a billion. It's definitely one of my favorite podcasts. You can do it on Apple, Spotify, or somewhere in the World Wide Web. Also, a special pre-show shout out to listener David Stanley Hewitt of Japan. Oh my God, I love Japan. Uh, he left a review saying, fantastic. Love this podcast. Content is refreshing, positive, and varied. I'm an artist in Japan, so... Not really my universe, but so fun to listen to and helps me rethink my thinking. Thanks, Noah. Damn, that was a cool one. Thank you and every other one of your gorgeous listeners. If you want to shout out in a future episode, leave a review wherever you listen to this podcast. I check every single one of them. How are you? Dude, I'm doing great. Who is David Perel? David is the founder of Rite of Passage. He writes on the internet and teaches people to write on the internet. And he is somebody who is interested in what it means to become a citizen of the internet, how to use the internet to accelerate your career, build meaningful relationships, and live with more joy. Who's Noah Kagan? I think I've been described, self-described as a not Kung Pao chicken, but sweet and salty pork. A hmm. little bit of spice, a little bit of uh, heat, a little bit of fun. Uh, you know, just kind of an adventure. Adventure in this world, exploring a lot of different areas probably from a lack of satisfaction and then, you know, searching for non-available fulfillment. <laughs> Sometimes fulfilled, but uh, I'd say an adventurer. Dude, I think I've had more people say, no, I'll just say what Dan said. Dan said, if I, no one knows how to have fun better than anyone I know. Is that, oh, that's what Dan said? Yeah. He was roommate, right? Yeah. We've lived together in Spain. Uh, Dan's like one of my favorite new friends. I think what's interesting is like, what makes us like someone versus not? I was reading a Kotke put out a thing. He's like old school. He's like my school internet. He posted something that it, it takes 200 hours to build a friendship. There's like some study about that. I thought that was kind of fascinating too. Like it, with life, everything takes time, but friendship even like the quality of best friends is 200 hours. Dude, I don't think that's true at all. It may not be. Dude, I'm telling you, there are certain people where you really have something deep with them. Dude, I had this guy, I've hung out with him two times and... And I met him and we're sitting out in the Texas sun and I was sitting around the circle. There are maybe eight of us. And I looked him in the eye and I just felt an instant connection with him. I swear we became fast friends. I've hung out with him two times since then. He lives an hour and a half away. And I feel like I can have a deeper 
and more real conversation with him than many people I've known for years. What is it about that? I think that sometimes there's just these sort of mystical and ethereal fits between people. The problem with things that where it's 200 hours is it sort of assumes that just that everyone's the same. And I just think some people just fit us better. They're these weird, these weird harmonies that can be hard to pick up on. And I think that for me, he represents a kind of masculinity that I really admire. And for him, I am somebody who likes ideas in a way that I think he doesn't have as much in his life. And it just became this, this instant friendship. And I think that this is something that you're good at too. Like you have a lot of really good friends, truly. And I bet you haven't spent 200 hours with a lot of those people. I bet that your ability to make friends fast is in the top five percentile. And it'd be interesting to figure out why. Yeah, I'm curious about it. I will say, I don't know if there, I guess I haven't really tried to reflect on it, but I have really good guys around. We just did an international dad's day this weekend. I'm not a dad, but my buddy's a dad and my buddy's about to become a dad. So we thought we'd throw him a party. The original idea was to be like alcohol and like, I'm not, a, you know, I don't think any of us are in the strip clubs, but just like debauchery. And then instead with, you know, with games and one of the guys had a kid early, so we weren't able to do it. But this international dad's day, we spent seven hours in the, in the Korean spa, which if you have not done a Korean spa, have you done Korean spa? No. What is it? If you might need a Korean spa. You like see your buddy's dick. You're like, well, I guess we're friends <laughs> now. That's, uh, that's awkward. To, it's awkward for me. I don't like doing it. And then there's saunas and there's food and there's a gym. We spent like seven hours there. And then we uh, had dinner at a vegan place. And then we brought photos of our fathers and then talked about the good and bad of them. And uh, we could definitely could have spent more time on that. But it was a really nice like moment to like learn about how do we want to be better dads? What we learn from our dads? It was a nice moment. But I come back to the original thing. It's also interesting, like, what is it about different people in our lives professionally, as well as personally that you kind of know, like, you're you like, just I know. fuck with this person. Yeah. What right now are your favorite things to talk about or to be exploring? I'm really interested in how Christianity shaped the West. I'm going to different churches every week in Austin, and I'm very interested in both the sociology of Christianity and sort of the relationship between religion and contemporary atheism and how Christian we are. And to the extent that Christian ideas feel trite and obvious, it's only because they've been so influential. You know, the Bible, I didn't grow up religious, but they've got such cool stories. I like your storytelling ability. Dude, I love the Cain and Abel story. I just know that's a bar in Austin. Can you tell us the actual story? That's actually a fun bar in Austin. <laughs> I know. I'm, I should... <laughs> yeah. I mean, basically, there's two brothers. And throughout the biblical history, you know, brothers and twins, they were sort of a curse. And this is right after, I think it is the third chapter in the book of Genesis. So you have the Garden of Eden, which everybody knows. And Adam and Eve get banished from the Garden of Eden. And then it sort of goes into the Cain and Abel story. What happens is there's two brothers and Cain is sort of good at things or, or Cain isn't good at things and Abel is. And basically Cain kills Abel with a rock. He's sort of jealous. Then there's a section later on that, and this is sort of throughout the Bible, like there's, and I'd say this is someone who's not religious. I'm just interested in these ideas. There's a line that says, you know, if you throw a stone seven times, it will be returned 77 times. And I think that it hits at two points that I think are very revealing about sort of the darker sides of human nature. The first is the way that envy can cause us to not speak rationally. And the second is the way that violence can escalate and spiral out of control. 
the canonical example of that. I mean, look, there were underlying conditions here, but the killing of Franz Ferdinand at the beginning of World War One, just that assassination turns into a global war. And Peter Thiel has that great line where, you know, he talks about how in Romeo and Juliet, the first line is two houses, both alike in dignity, to basically say, hey, you know, these two houses, they're very similar, just like the Cain and Abel, just like the two brothers. And from being alike, a lot of times you get rivalry and violence, and it's not so often differences. That's very interesting to me. And it's, it was actually that story was the background of my phone for a little while. It kind of haunts me. So often we talk about, you know, these big picture issues, you know, there's geopolitical issues and stuff like that. But I'm really interested in, in the intimate, the rivalries between friends, the different kinds of competition that maybe people in the same industry face, these sort of very human and subtle interactions that are multidimensional and kind of hard to put your finger on. And that's what's so great about stories is every time that you return to stories, you pick up on new things. They Different things stand out. Different points of emphasis emerge. I've known about that story now for you know two decades of my life, and it's still giving me more fruit. And there's something magical about that, man. I guess I'm curious how it, it changes your day-to-day or your month-to-month or year-to-year. And- yeah. I, so I just finished this, uh, this lecture series on a social theorist named Rene Girard. And one of the things that, I, that, that he spoke about is sort of the triangular nature of desire, that the worst conflict happens when two people want the same thing, that violence and, and rage come from closeness, not, not from being far away. You know, there's that famous saying that good fences make good neighbors. But a lot of times when, <laughs> you know, two people are, are, I've never heard that. are very closely aligned. That, oh, really? It's good. And so I just, I'm always just thinking about the structure of my relationships to sort of avoid, avoid that mimetic conflict. Because I just think that Gerard's take on human nature is just very right. It's very unique. I've now just spent years just diving into it and studying it. And and the better part of the last four months, I mean, just prepping every single night for the series, helping my friend who was hosting the lectures to build it out. And I'm just always thinking about just the nature of relationships and how do you avoid that that mimetic conflict, you know, of two people being so similar like Cain and Abel. Did you have a, uh, a bad experience? Honestly, no. I haven't had any experience through mimetic conflict that I think has been really bad, but I have seen it so many times in other people. Actually, I guess that sort of zooming big picture, the thing that got me into his work was just like this realization that so many people are doing things, not because they want to, but because their parents said so, or because it's what everybody else is doing. You know, like the smartest people in the world right now, they graduate from these top tier universities and they work in this is something we focused a lot in the lecture series. They work in, they go to become doctors, lawyers, investment bankers, or management consultants. And that's what the smartest people in the world are doing. And like, why? Like, why is that the thing? There's just higher leverage uses of time that a lot of those people can be doing. And I saw myself going down that route. I saw myself having desires that weren't my own. I mean, this is just classic Gerard stuff. And I guess that because I saw that so much and then really began begun to understand his work, you know, a lot of these ideas came alive for me. I've read, I've read half the book Wanting. I think that's one that is based a lot on Gerard. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. And, you know, we want things because we actually see that other people want them versus like, what do we really want for ourselves? And that's his general concept. Yeah. I guess, how do you explore what you really want in life or want this year and so forth? So one of the things I do is I write an annual review every year. It'll be, you know, many thousands of words. 
I'll think through where have I been? And, and, and this year's was tough. Like there were certain goals that I, that I didn't hit last year and I'm very hard on myself. And there are certain goals that I didn't hit last year. And, you know, I'll look into why, how can I live my life differently in order to achieve those things? And I think that one of the real challenges is like, it's really easy to quantify business goals. You know, you can say, this would happen with my email list. This is how, how my business grew or didn't grow, stuff like that. But what's hard to do is think through a lot of the personal relationships, right? Like my relationship with my sister is really important to me or spending more time with my family, stuff like that. I mean, I think your parents live in New Mexico. Yeah. My parents live in, uh, in California. And so both of us have a certain challenge of needing to work to go see them, right? And so I'll think through stuff like that. And I've also just after college, I was so focused on work that some of the relationships that I had with childhood friends just didn't stay as strong as I would have would have liked. And so this year, you know, I just had to confront that with best friend from high school, best friend from college, like, how do I improve those relationships? And then I put together a plan for the next year, you know, I put together different goals. And I just try to think through very tactically, what am I going to do? And how can I structure my life so that I can do those things? I think you've talked about some of your 2022 goals. Do you, do you want to share some of those? I think that, that inspires a lot of people. Yeah, I mean, I think that probably the most interesting one is I really want to build a liberal arts school. That's one of the things I would like to do probably in my 30s or 40s. I think that for many reasons, liberal arts education just absolutely stinks right now. It's too expensive. It's very politicized. It is not that easy for people who really want to study it to do it. People who do go get a master's or especially a PhD, they end up disproportionately working in academia. So it's sort of like, you know, it's sort of like this, Noah. It's like no church would ever say to you that, of course, you can build a relationship with God, but you can only come from 18 to 22. And we have a four year time period. But then if you stay from like 22 to 30, then you can do that. But only if you intend to become a pastor later in your life. And if you're like 45, no, you can't come study and Maybe technically you can, but that's just going to be weird. No church would ever do that. But that's exactly what we do with the liberal arts, with these really important ideas that built our modern civilization. And I think that the world needs a school where people can go to, no matter where they are in life, that doesn't cost a fortune, that doesn't have these politicized undertones. And I would really like to build that. So my goal for this year in particular is I'm thinking through how can I find really high quality scholars and people who've been spending years studying this person or that person, and how can I invite them to Austin to host the canonical lecture series on that person? You know, four to eight hours, that is much more advanced than entry level, but not so advanced and stuffy that people have to have tons of experience with their ideas. And so that's something I'm working on this year. So I just finished Gerard. I'm now starting working on one about Shakespeare. And then, you know, I want to find a couple more. And so what I like to do is just set these really big picture goals and then back into, okay, what are the first couple steps that I need to do while maintaining a vision that will inspire me when things inevitably suck? Go on with that, the last part. Dude, working hard is hard. You know, it's like there's times in anything that you are trying to do, whether you're building a company, whether you're trying to do a lecture series, there are times when you're going to have to grind. You know, it's like everyone wants to be ripped. No one wants to do set four, rep 12 on heavyweight. Everybody wants to be smart. No one wants to skip a party on a Friday night to sit and read a big book and then to wake up the next morning and journal on it. And that stuff is hard. That's why people 
don't achieve more. And so what I try to do is set a vision so that I can work through, you know, those moments of, of, of difficulty. Now, I don't want to be the guy who's like, oh, I need to discipline myself and be really hard on myself and all those things. Like, I don't want that. But what I want is to plot forward deliberately towards a vision that I find to be inspiring, where the end sort of raise me, raises me up. And it's the thing that makes me push hard when things get tricky. I think the thing I'm, I'm admiring about you is I like that you're thinking, hey, everyone's studying the now, everyone's distracted with the now. Y'all are fools. I don't think you're saying that, but maybe you are. Let me go to the, the this old school wisdom, which I like. And then I think secondly, I wonder if we're giving ourselves enough space, including myself, to actually process our understanding of ourselves, like actually mm. creating time. When people say, I'm going to give them space. It's like, what the fuck do you mean? It's just like, I'm going to give them time to think about it. And I think it, it seems like your writing gives you a lot of that. Is that something you've learned becoming like such a great golfer? Like how did, I guess I was curious, like the connection between mm. your golfing excellence and you know how you become your writing excellence yeah so i think that there's one very important caveat with me being good at golf and i don't want to say a caveat but there's one sort of wrinkle in this story that i think is an important premise which is that i was not a naturally talented golfer and i wasn't a particularly natural talented writer and so what i'm good at is being deliberate day in and day out to work on something work towards a skill that i value and to show up every day and just like stubbornly get better at that thing, but then to codify what it is that I learn and try to share that with others. So I was in high school and my senior year of high school, I wrote a 65 page manual on the physics of the way a ball flies and how the body moves, what's called the kinematic sequence and how different ways and different flows of how your body moves. So for example, when your hips move before your shoulders and your chest and then the club, like that's a good kinematic sequence. And that's how then you create power. And all the great golfers, they they create power in the same way. And same thing with baseball players, hockey players, it's the same thing across the board, tennis players. And so I wrote this manual about that. And so I guess what I do, who I am, is somebody who tries to get really good at things, tries to codify different rules, principles, frameworks, and then to share those with other people. I, I, I love doing that. And that's what I live for. I like your goals. Do you have a lot? Candidly, I was assuming you'd have like an alternative way of thinking about goals, right? Like you, there's so many different mm. things. Like you see this stuff where people are like, I have a schedule where there's no schedule. And then we're all amazed by it, right. especially if they, there's someone who's successful, quote unquote. And so I guess I assumed that, you know, there, there'd be a different or some like third universe way that you're thinking about your goals. Because it does, it also seems like a lot of them, just like uh, weekly all hands, personal tasks, email subscribers. Well, like a weekly all hands is sort of the opposite. So that comes from, managing a decent amount of people and having to check in with all of them individually. So that section, I basically say, okay, I'm going to lay out my goals for 2022, but I'm going to start with the things that are going to save me time. And so I wrote out, I don't know, eight to 10, and then actually had a paragraph about how specifically I was thinking about each one. Yeah, it's, it's thorough. You know, I'm reading this book here, which I can't say I, I recommend, but it's called Positive Intelligence. I have a friend who's um, very successful CEO, and I love her. I think she's so impressive. But one of the things the book was talking about, I'm curious what goes for you as you're writing your goals and, and thinking about it is like, what are the voices in David's head? Like, as you're doing your goals and you're doing your writing, I, I you know, I was curious that either the book talks about how we, we judge ourselves. I guess I'm just curious to know more who, who, you know, ask who David is. I think part of that is like, as you're doing these different ways of processing things, like, what is that voice in your head? I mean, I think that there's a voice of 
of judgment and criticism that I always just try to channel. I, I, I feel like a lot of people are like, don't judge yourself, don't criticize. And I, I think you should judge yourself and you should criticize. Like, and I'm going to think through, like, why did that rub you the wrong way? And I didn't realize that. And so whatever happened, you know, I don't want that to happen again. So that is a certain judgment and criticism. But where it goes wrong is a lot of people will start getting mad at themselves and they'll start saying, I suck. I'm worthless. I don't mean anything. That's counterproductive. And all of us descend into that spiral sometimes. But what then I'll try to take from that is, look, I had good intentions. What is happening? How are other people perceiving this? What is actually going on? And then knowing that I am in, in good faith trying to be earnest and trying to treat people with the respect that they deserve, I will take what you're saying as a data point and then I will reflect on that and start asking, okay, what do I need to do to become a better man? Yeah, I was noticing in this book, my friend calls it triggers, but in this book, like judgment or behavioral styles. I, I like what you what you said there. It's not necessarily being so hard on ourselves about all these things, but they're, they're there to serve us in some way. And so how to directionally use them. It talks about like positive intelligent quotient. I don't know, woohoo bullshit kind of a little bit. But like, how do you just like channel your negative shit to make it positive? So right. I, I like that, man. But I think that all of us have negative emotions. And I, I think that one of the big problems with modern culture is like, there is this certain positivity bias. And what we'll do is like, we'll have negative emotions. And so then we over positivize the world. <laughs> and we get in a place where it's like, yay, 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 all these sorts of things. And it's all like just jolly and great. While there's this sort of malaise and this like undercurrent of, you know, people who are depressed and people who I think feel tremendous levels of stress and anxiety. And rather than trying to like contend with the darkness, and I love what you said, like I think of flows, right? It's like you have a flow of negativity. How do you redirect that into uh, something useful or productive or joyous, whatever that is? I think that sometimes we're too quick to banish the negative mm. rather than trying to like channel it, trying to understand it. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, it's, it is funny. We're just like, okay, this is bad. I got to be good. And it, my buddy Joe from Unchained.com, I love him. But he has some stuff which is like, you know, things can be both. I think sometimes in my mindset, it's like black and white. It's like either or. It's like, why is it black and white? Why can't it be in color? And uh, I think the same thing with, you know, when you're feeling sad, I think we, we want to com like comfort someone else. I think that's natural. They want to take care of them. But he's like, no, eh, maybe it's okay to feel a little discomfort. I'm like, oh, it's hard, right? To feel it also hard not to, you know. So sometimes it's hard to fucking know how to help another person. Well, it's hard to know how to help ourselves. And like, if someone else is in need, like, okay, let me comfort them. Let me not comfort them. It's, it's a challenge. So interesting. I've actually been thinking a lot about this. And one of the things that I found helpful when I'm struggling with something and say, I come to you, Noah, and like, I got a problem and, you know, I just had a really tough day because like December was a tough month. And so I had a lot of, a lot of things happen in my life that were just, I just had to grow up a lot that month. And I would talk to friends and tell them about what was going on. And all the friends who were the most helpful did two things, and they're paradoxical. And I think that's what makes it so interesting. The first thing was they acknowledged what I was saying, and they allowed me to sort of go into it and explore that idea. And they took my problem seriously. But the other thing that they did was they reminded me that I'm too zoomed into my problems. Look at the big picture. It's not a big deal, dude. 
And I think that a lot of what comforting people is, is both of those things that you're listening to them enough to make them feel heard enough to have like a certain validation around that pain or discomfort that they're feeling, but also to just zoom out and say, this is not as big of a deal as you think it is. Yeah, almost nothing is. That's hard in the moment though. I have an HOA and these HOA people are at a point where it's just almost ludicrous. Like I was, for two hours, I was thinking of all the vengeful things I could do to them. And I was like, this is not helpful. Yeah. It's like, doesn't help them, doesn't help the situation. I couldn't let it go though. You feel good, but it doesn't, it doesn't serve you. And so I, I think a lot of times it's, it is knowing that in like, sometimes it's like in six months, this won't matter. I think about that a lot of things, like in a year, this won't matter. But I, I was journaling two days ago and I thought the opposite of that. I was like, well, what will I thank myself in a year from now? Like, what could I do today that I'd be like, dude, one year from now, Noah's thanking you <laughs> for, for doing these things. So like probably dating, it was related to like being healthy and drinking, related to some of the YouTube stuff, just like stay with it. Just keep doing it. No, one year, Noah will thank you. Do you have stuff that one year from now, David, will thank today? I really like that. I mean, I tend to think on a slightly longer time horizons because most of the things- Do you really? I think on generally shorter and longer ones. Oh, wow. A big theme for me for 2021 was just commitment, like committing to Austin, committing to the people in my life, committing to Rite of Passage. Like, I really love what I do. I'm not looking for any exits in terms of my professional life. I just want to keep going. So now I'm thinking about certain things like, what can I uniquely do if I have a five-year time horizon on something? What does that actually open up for me? And a great example is like, I was able, because we made these Gerard lectures to last 20 years. That was sort of the, the state admission. So then we could spend the time to go get a grant. We got a $20,000 grant for the lectures. So then we could fly in a videographer. We could rent the nicest room that was perfect for this in all of Austin. Then we could hire a really high quality film team. We rehearsed every single night from like 7 to 10 p.m. going through every single lecture. And they're 11,000 word lectures. And then I could afford to spend three full days just recording them. And every single sentence that wasn't perfect, I said, stop and redo it. And if you don't have a really long time horizon, that effort isn't worth it. But at the same time, I have a super short time horizon of like, what am I going to do today? And I'm super impatient. And I'm like, I need this right now. And so I'll take long-term time horizon things and go and bring it into the day. I like that. Like, if you know it's going to be five years, why are we sweating so much today? Dude, don't get me wrong. I, I, I go through the emotional, the emotional roller coasters of the day. So it does, it's not a panacea. Yeah. I mean, I'm almost 40 and it does trip me out. It's like, all right, there's literally like 2,000 more weeks to live. And then like you can get so uh, paralyzed by that that thought that's like, well, there's only 2000. This day is like, did today matter? You know, and then you, you can try to be intentional. I guess for you, you said December was was challenging and I'm hoping January is better. Like, what was the difference? I don't know. You didn't even say January is better. I just assumed it. No, December was just challenging. What, what made December so challenging? I mean, just like fumbling a contract, having a lot of contracts to sign, like just structuring uh, equity deal in my business some seriously difficult conversations with a close friend. And, you know, all those things sort of pile up and January has been amazing. You know, it's just, there's these ebbs and flows of life. And sometimes it's heavy. Sometimes it's lighter. It's like good music. One thing we did last week that was actually really powerful and I hated it, but it was like, I had these uh, advisors to the business asking me, I'm like, what are the hardest things I'm not answering in the company? And I think we could probably do that with our own lives too. It's like, what are the hardest things we're avoiding? And I answered them and I was mad at them afterwards for making me do it. But then I was like thankful afterwards because I was like, oh, wow, like we have clarity. And it's the stuff that I've been avoiding. Can I ask you a question? Yeah, please. I feel like you do a very good job of cultivating a radical honesty. And you're comfortable with 
a certain kind of casualness that I think allows you to speak directly to people. And where does that come from and how intentional is that? I think the challenge with the way I speak sometimes is that it's, it's hard to know what version you're going to get of me. Hmm. Like, are you going to get like the goofy, like I was joking about, you know, opera tunity for someone who's like an opera singer today. And like, it's funny. And then like goofing off. And then it's like, come in hot, right? Like, oh, why is this, you know? And so I, I try to be mindful of my energy and how it's going to impact someone else when I'm interacting with them. It's interesting, you know, in YouTube world and certain content world, I've put out my, not all my net worth, but some of my money and some of these different things. And what I've experienced in that is, you know, you'd say I have good friends. I think a lot of it is like, I'm behaving in a way that I enjoy. And I find the people that, you know, fit the Tetris piece. The two things there is that when I've shared more, I find it just creates a more enjoyable conversation. So if I'm asking something that I'm just curious, mostly I'm just curious, generally, I'm just like, oh, this is, uh, these are the questions I wrote down before I talked with you. And you sent me one, so I try to incorporate both. But I think I'm curious about that stuff. And then I find when you, you kind of ask those questions, it, it, I don't know, it provides a richer conversation. Yeah. Say it's also interesting the people that we get energy from when we're having communication. And so just kind of being mindful of that. You know, it's interesting when you're on a date or when you're talking with different people, like, where are they getting more excited? Where are they getting less excited? And totally. uh, trying to figure out what questions and mannerisms increase the, the energy levels. It doesn't always have to be positive, but uh, I'm stimulating, I would say. Where does it come from? I don't know. My mom fucking doesn't shut up. She asks a lot of questions. That's all she does. You know, what's interesting about what you're saying is there's a way to hear what you're saying in terms of take the date example, right? So you're out and there's certain parts of the conversation that, you know, go well and certain parts that don't go well. And then when you're dating somebody, there's certain ways that you really connect and certain ways that you really don't. And so both people sort of mold themselves into each other. And there's a way of thinking about that where it's inauthentic. But I think that the interesting question is, how do you authentically mold yourself towards somebody else in a way that is, you know, it's like a dance, you know, it's a uh, two people dancing is what a conversation is. And every person has different vibrations, different energies, and you've got to be in tune with whatever that is for the other person. And how do you do that in a way that's authentic? And then what then becomes the line to where now you're not actually being you, you're, you're no longer Noah Kagan. Well, I think what's interesting is I, I used to have a lot of anxiety when there's quietness, hmm. like in my own head, and then in conversation, where it's just like, like, let's pause for like five seconds. Right, like, just five seconds. You know, it's a... Uh, I don't know. I think there's maybe something about me that I've, I just want it to be busy. Like I'm just wanting it to be active. And so slowing down and trying to write and process my thoughts is definitely helpful. Talking through my thoughts is definitely helpful. Yeah, I think it's interesting to notice, you know, like you go on different dates. I think you're single now. I just started dating somebody. Nice. That's why January's been good, baby. Dude. <laughs> See, look at the energy right there. Dude, right? I'm so happy. That's interesting. I'm so happy. Hell yeah. What makes you so happy about it? You know, you talk to people with kids and they'll say there's moments with your kids where you'll be watching them play or something. And for a second, everything will just feel complete. And I think it's the same thing with a significant other. We were sitting out on Mount Bonnell the other night, beautiful sunset. I took her out just to watch the view. You know, you're looking over the lake, nice, you know, slightly cold evening. So I brought, I brought a blanket for the two of us and we're sitting, we got our arms around each other and this couple right in front of us proposes. And every person just stands up, mother comes in, everyone gets to share uh, some champagne just to celebrate. You know, there are maybe eight of us there. And you just got to watch two people solidify their love for each other while you have your arm wrapped around somebody that you care about. And I just think sometimes so often we're chasing, we're getting after something, but there's moments with friends, with significant others, 
where you can just be in that moment. And for once, life feels complete. It's beautiful. You're a great storyteller. Thanks. It's easier than saying like, oh, life is fulfilled when you see a nice sunset, right? Like telling you the, the moment of it. I was with my friends this weekend at the International Dad's Day, and I, I have this thought from time. I'm like, why do they like me? I know why I like them, right? I'm like, JR, you got style. You know how to dance. You got good music tastes. You're low key. You go to Home Depot and you, you like, you know, <laughs> he's like, oh boy, we're going to Costco again this Sunday. And uh, yeah, maybe the people are, are not similar to us. They provide another thing that we want to learn from. I think that's a big one. Right. And, and the people that we're connecting with. To the conversation stuff, I don't know. Yeah, I guess it might be my mom coming back to that. She asks a lot of questions. Yeah. I'm like, I don't know how you have so many questions for someone who doesn't do very much all day. <laughs> Come on. She's like, oh, let me tell you, I went to the store. I'm like, you know, <laughs> I'm grateful for that. You know, one of the things many years ago, I was doing an annual review. And so I hosted this retreat in uh, upstate New York. And before the retreat, I got some advice and somebody was like, you know what? Try this. Email your 10 best friends and just give them an anonymous survey. And one of my questions was, what is one thing that really bothers you about me? I'll never forget one of these responses. It was sometimes you ask a question and you ask so many questions in a way that doesn't respect my space. And then a lot of the compliments that I got were you ask great questions and you open up so much in terms of our conversations. <laughs> and I think that that right there is sort of the art of asking questions, right? There's the mom who asks you so many questions where you feel like you're suffocating and you're claustrophobic in your own house. And there's the mom that asks you a bunch of questions and you just feel a tremendous sense of love and gratitude coming from her. And the question is, what are the subtleties in the art of asking questions so that you get less of the invasiveness and more of the care? Yeah. I was curious, you know, I'm curious about your business model. Is the majority of your money come from the Rite of Passage school? Everything, everything. And I'm going all in on Rite of Passage. I just believe in it so much. So all of the money you make is just from that one thing? Yeah. That's interesting. Because like sometimes lately I'm like, are people still doing courses? Uh, they're <laughs> yeah. going to be, they're going to be huge. Online education is going to, going to explode. It's still so early. It's just the time and the place for it, man. It's just the time and the place. And to teach the world how to write and specifically how to write for the internet, that excites me. And I don't want to be somebody with multiple revenue streams. I want to be somebody with, with a real business and a company and employees where I'm aligned with them and I got one thing that I focus on and I want to be focused and I want to be committed to the one thing I'm doing. Because look, we live in a world of power laws. And if you can get that one power law and you take, you know, units of focus and you direct it towards that power law, I think that you can get exponential outcomes. And I look at a lot of creators and they have a bunch of revenue streams and I think that's cool. But for me, creation is useful as an end in itself. And it's useful insofar as it helps you build something meaningful for the world. I'm just less interested in sort of being a creator as my end point, as like how I make my money. I'm really interested in like, building this business around it. And also I just, I love creating. So it's an end in itself for me in that way. How did you realize you could make money teaching people how to write? When I started to get an audience, I had a bunch of people following me in the finance industry and they specifically asked me to, to teach them. And so I did some consulting and I was the world's worst consultant, just truly. I had a friend, I said, hey man, you got your course. I would love to make the same things. And in a call that was probably the most impactful 10 minute call of my life, you know, seven minutes in, he's like, gave him the pitch. He said, dude, let's do it. Flew down to 
Mexico City with him. Two months later, we brought in a film crew from the States, and we just recorded and recorded and recorded and pulled me up and said, this is how you do it, man. And I'm forever, forever grateful for him. I've subscribed to Not Boring. It's a strong newsletter. What are the, some of the elements you're noticing about their writing that you help them improve? Okay, so what people get wrong about writing is they think that writing is what we learn in school. So they think of writing as grammar, logic, syntax, all those sorts of things. Writing is actually a bundle of skills. Writing is how do you cultivate a friend group that allows you to have interesting conversations. Writing is how do you curate and consume information so that you're getting interesting ideas. Writing is how do you actually build a daily habit. Writing is how then do you push your ideas out in the world and build an audience of people who are continuously coming back to your stuff, right? Like if product subscriptions give you recurring revenue, email subscribers give you recurring attention. So how do you think about that bundle of skills And then in a five-week program, how can I deliver those things and give people the environment and the motivation and the community that they need to then continue writing and moving down that path? And that's what Rite of Passage is all about. Hold on, you went really quick there. Slow it down. Cool. So like Packy McCormick, he had it. Did he have a newsletter? Did he already have a Twitter? Because like some of these people have Twitter followings, I'm noticing a little bit. Is it for people who already kind of have some stuff going? And then it's like completing the loop. Like, yeah, I think of Rite of Passage as for people who have gotten started as writers. They're doing okay. They have some momentum, but they really want to pour fuel on the fire and they want to start taking online writing seriously. So Packy though, I mean, early on, it was a little bit more geared towards beginners. I think Packy sent his first ever newsletter and article in Rite of Passage. I remember we have this assignment called the curation assignment where you have this this idea or somebody who you admire and you curate a piece on it. And he did it about Ben Thompson. And I think that was like his first or second article in Rite of Passage. And then I actually hosted a private fellowship for seven or eight people. And Packy was part of that. He wrote an essay about a concept called Senius. To the best of my knowledge, that was his first long form essay. And then he was like, two months is too much time. I'm going to start doing it in one week. And so now he does exactly what we worked on in that fellowship every week. What do you think are some an element for every listener that can improve their writing? Treat your conversations as a first draft of your thoughts. Like whenever you have a good conversation, you have ideas that you're looking at the other person and they're nodding their head. They're saying, hmm, that's interesting. And if you say something two or three times and people keep finding it interesting, well, you've already done the writing. You just got to take that idea from something that you said to something that you've written. Got to take it from words to the page. Well, that is a wrap. I hope you loved the episode as much as we did making it for you. If you did, go check out David's personal site at perel.com. That's P-E-R-E-L-L.com. Also his online writing school at writeofpassage.school. Next, text a friend you love him. Yo, dog, let's go golf together. Before you go, tweet at me or Instagram DM at Noah Kagan. I love hearing from y'all about what you think of these episodes and your feedback. You know, guys, y'all know I have a YouTube channel, youtube.com slash okdork. I know you guys do, so you can skip this part. But if you don't and you like YouTube, youtube.com slash okdork. Finally, shout out to my amazing team. Thank you to Jason at podcasttech.com for making the episodes. Mitchell, Jeremy, George, Hubert, Cam, Sasa, Nikki, and Jen for the Dork team for all the magic you do. And finally, shout out to Angelina and Jordan at AppSumo. Thank you for treating the candidates uh, that we're looking to hire at appsumo.com so amazing. Uh, if you're also looking to get a job, check us out appsumo.com slash careers. Have a cheerful day. What's your favorite smartphone app? What would be mine? Maybe Audible? <laughs> <laughs>